Hello, everyone. Welcome back to yet another episode of the Core Consult RX podcast. I'm joined today with my long lost co host, Dr. Cole Swanson. Mm. Cole, what's up, man? It's good to be back. It is. Hate that I missed the big 4 0. I know. Episode 40. It's, you know, it's fine. We're men now. You were. We're 40. Yeah. Yeah. For sure. So. As opposed to teenagers when we're 30. I mean, I do have a beard again. You do. For everyone who's watching just the audio version, uh, Cole has a beard. Watching the audio version. So, is that what I said? Listening to the audio version and not watching the YouTube or Facebook version, um, Cole has a beard. It's a great day. It is a good day. I feel like our podcast has already improved. I think so. Just because of your beard. I'm sure everybody can tell. For No Shave November. Yeah. Mm Mm-hmm. Um... You know, it's not to its former glory. No, definitely But it, it, it's getting there. <laughs> By the end of November, we'll reassess. Right now, it's I'm saying I'm saying it's it's adequate and it's going to do its purpose. But hopefully better than by clean the, shaven. By the end of November, I couldn't even look at you when you were clean shaven. <laughs> it was horrific, blinding. <laughs> Neither can my wife. Don't worry. <laughs> <laughs> I have literally been sleeping on the couch for the, for the last two months. Oh, it's brutal. Oh, jeez. Um, that's funny. Good, good stuff. I'm glad she's on board with the beard. Oh yeah. The uh, last episode, um, definitely missed having you on there with Dr. Uh, Philip Hall, yeah, Dean, great Dean Hall. But um, yeah, so it was cool to have him on. This time, we're going to go through chronic kidney disease. CKD. Yes, CKD. So um, you know, before we get started, man, how's how's life treating you? Where, where have you been all this time? It's good. It's traveling, man. Yeah. Bluffton, Myrtle Beach, Columbia, mm. all over the... The SC. Yeah. Tons and tons and tons of vaccines. Oh, yeah. My new record's 72 now in That's a day. Awesome. I think other people have, are higher, so it's not like I'm the best or anything, but well, that's my record. Well, we I can... think they're they're coming to a you know a close, hopefully, as November, because we'll get into turkey season. Yeah. And people we'll are see. just like going to accept the inevitable. At least I'm hoping. Yeah. It's, a, it's brutal out there, but good stuff. Well, do you... Uh, for CKD, we're going to kind of run through some of the uh, epidemiology of it, some of the patho. We'll go through um, really some of the comorbidities that kind of go along with CKD, right? So CKD, we don't necessarily have like a treatment. Mm-hmm. You take your kidney pills. Right. Um, we have to treat all the things that kind of go along when someone's renal function is declining. So we're going to kind of address some of those. Yeah, I'm pretty excited about this one because it's very common and it's I mean, it's one of the most common comorbidities i think because it goes along with a lot of stuff especially diabetes mm-hmm. so this will be good this will be good yeah Probably. i think it's, it's good to have good because it's it's always there and you know ckd's kind of around and their kidney functions decrease but you're focused on other issues it's good to have some background knowledge of what's going on which you know focusing on the other issues is really not important not important right yeah don't no. worry about those. <laughs> Oh, you were going to say also important. Sorry. Yeah. So, uh, that's what def- you got to do. It's definitely uh, a big thing. Um, and, and especially when you get into your, uh, unfortunately, elderly population, you have to deal with this a lot. It affects a lot of medications, a lot of uh, um, healthcare costs. So, definitely something we need to go through. It's really important to consider, especially with meds, because there's a lot of renally dosed medications for other disease states. And there's a lot of nephrotoxic medications that, once you realize a patient uh, has decreased kidney function, you may need to reassess. So we'll talk about that later. But uh, the old name for it is chronic renal failure. To me, if you're telling a patient they have chronic renal failure, it sounds a lot worse than chronic kidney disease. 
So I like the political political correctness there, I guess. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, it's it's a very broad term. Uh, it encompasses all degrees of decreased renal function from uh, at risk through mild and moderate to severe all the way to kidney failure. So uh, it can mean a lot of things, and we'll go through the, the staging, uh, stages one through five of it. But it really is a public health worldwide problem. Uh, prevalence is increasing mainly in the elderly population. Um, so it's, it's pretty bad, along with the comorbidities that come along with it. Absolutely. So do you want to start us off with some of the epidemiology and the patho? Do you have that pulled? Yeah. So, you know, I mentioned that it's increasing in the elderly population. Between 2000 and 2008, um, the incidence in uh, patients over 65 went from 1.8% to about 4.3%. So uh, more than a twofold increase where in that younger population from about 20 to 40, it really didn't increase uh, significantly. Um, But as far as patho goes... Uh, a normal kidney has a, about a million nephrons, each of which contributes to the total GFR, so the glomerular filtration rate. Uh, when you have a renal injury, no matter why it's caused, the kidney has an innate ability to maintain its GFR. That's what it's going to try. Uh, so just like the pancreas, when you have um, increased uh, sugar requirements or increased insulin requirements, the pancreas are going to start compensating, cranking up more insulin, and then eventually uh, the beta cells are going to start dying off. The nephrons are going to compensate, and they're going to um, go into a state of hyperfiltration, uh, compensatory hypertrophy, and over time they're going to start dying off. Uh, So really when you start to see um, decreases in GFR, you've probably lost about 50% of those nephrons already. Uh, So that's pretty significant. And by the time you see uh, an increase in serum creatinine, which is a marker we commonly look at for kidney issues, you probably lost about 50% of your um, nephrons already. Uh, plasma creatinine value will double with a 15% reduction or a 50% reduction in GFR. Um, so if a patient's baseline is 0.6 and it goes up to 1.2, that's actually doubling, even though it's within the normal range you may be able to assume that there's a 50% loss of nephron mass going on there. So uh, it's it's a significant issue, and sometimes it can be um, insidious. So there's a lot of reasons why this might happen, uh, hypertension being an extremely common reason. Uh, hypertension isn't indicative of CKD necessarily, but most patients with CKD probably have hypertension. Also, nephrotoxic meds like NSAIDs, um, IV contrast media, if a patient's having to have that a lot, decreased perfusion from dehydration or shock, proteinuria, high cholesterol, smoking, uncontrolled diabetes, all of these can lead to CKD and cause this loss of nephron function, which is ultimately what it is. Exactly. And you mentioned the um, the classifications, the ranking system. Um, I th- definitely think that's uh, important to kind of look at, especially when we think about uh, the drugs and the, the renal dose adjustments that we have to make with so many different medications. But the, the Cadago guidelines will basically break it down on uh, based off GFR. Um, and so if you have someone that's has CKD and they have category uh, G1, um, oftentimes we just say you know, category 1, it's uh, greater than 90 uh, mils per minute based on um, body surface area. And then uh, stage 2 is 60 to 89 mils per minute. 
Um, 3A, we often just say stage 3, um, but technically it's 3A, is 45 to 59, stage 3B, 30 to, 50, 30 to 44, and then stage 4 is 15 to 29, and then less than 15 is considered stage 5 or end-stage renal disease if the person is requiring dialysis. So that's technically kidney failure at that point. Yeah, the, the staging is extremely important. So it first came around back in 2002, uh, and it was a Kadoki um, guideline that was put out, and it was subsequently updated by Kadigo. Uh, and it's it's important because, like I said, chronic kidney disease is a very broad term. So you have to be able to um, stage it and classify it. So the communication between providers and uh, whoever else is taking care of the patients, whoever is dosing their medications, can be consistent. And while it's not all perfect, it's at least uh, a bit of a guide. So that's definitely important. Uh, stage one and stage two are not necessarily um, enough alone for a clinical diagnosis. So a lot of times a patient has to have uh, albuminuria along with that or electrolyte abnormalities, um, urine sediment abnormalities, or history of kidney transplant, that sort of thing to actually call it CKD uh, in the face of stage one or stage two. Um, also measuring that GFR is, is important because we use several different ways of calculating that. Um, one of the um, most popular ways for a while was the MDRD, um, and that calculation does a good job. Um, however, it's not able to really um, accurately give you um, a GFR for an acute renal failure issue, um, an acute renal injury. Um, and the other thing that they realized kind of after uh, MDRD had been established is that for patients that are healthier, so patients that have better renal function, um, it actually underestimates the actual GFR. Um, and there was a study that showed that it underestimated them by roughly 29%. Um, so it works well. We know that uh, patients that kind of start progressing stage three and further um, with chronic kidney disease, but uh, the healthier patients, the ones with a little bit better renal function, it doesn't do as good of a job. Um, so we also have the chronic kidney disease epidemiology collaboration equation. So that's fun to say. CK or yeah, CKD epi. Um, that was uh, developed basically as an effort to um, make a formula that did give you a very precise, um, still an estimate, but a precise estimate of the GFR. So that's um, typically what uh, is used now to calculate it. Um, and then there's also, if you wanted to switch to creatinine clearance, which um, is very, very similar, then uh, you would use Cockroft-Galt. Um, however, that takes uh, a little bit more of a, a guesstimate, if you will, because you have to take into account the weight. Um, it's changes for female patients, and so GFR seems to be a little bit more accurate picture. And they can also, like... Um just measure it, right? Mm -hmm. Like literally measure the urine that comes out. Yes. So 24-hour... So 100%. And you can you can check uh, renal function by several other invasive procedures, um, but that's the problem is they're, they are invasive. Yeah. They take time. Mm -hmm. um, so if you really need an absolute accurate picture, then you could do it um, several different ways um, other than using an estimate you know, based on an equation. But usually we settle for the equations and call it a day. And the patient's usually in dire straits and probably the hospital if you're if you're doing that so. right so uh yeah what do you want to kind of go first yeah so signs and symptoms of ckd you're not always going to see really anything with stages one through three they're not going to notice it's really in stages four to five that you're noticing a lot of the um 
explicit issues that come along with it, especially stuff that the, that the patient's going to notice. Um, that's where the endocrine and metabolic derangements and disturbances of water and electrolyte balance come into play. Uh, so you might have signs of metabolic acidosis, like muscle weakness, loss of lean body mass. Uh, there might be alterations in the way the kidneys are handling salt and water. So you might have peripheral edema, pulmonary edema, uh, fluctuations in their hypertension and make it worse or better or not, not better, but, uh, worse or, um, yeah, just worse. I think yeah. I don't think it's going to get better. No. Uh, the anemia is also a common issue. So, um, those sorts of things can happen and you, you'll see them pop up on blood tests and, um, in your, uh, physical exam. Uh, and there's some more significant issues that can arise, which we'll talk about a little bit, but pericarditis, encephalopathy, um, peripheral neuropathy, GI issues, malnutrition, all that kind of stuff. So, yep. yeah. Um, the other thing we didn't touch on as far as staging that is really important is albuminuria. Yes. So back in the day, we used to have to say hard words, which I still use by accident sometimes, um, such as microalbuminuria, which I've probably butchered on this podcast before when I say it fast. It's the infamous word. <laughs> it's the worst. Um, but realistically speaking, we're supposed to look at the albumin-creatinine ratio and then give it a category A1, A2, or A3. So A1 being less than 30, A2 is 30 to 300 milligrams per gram when you're looking at the albumin-creatinine ratio. That's really what would be classified as microalbuminuria back in the day. Um, that term is uh, encouraged not to be used at this point, um, at least from most of the sources that I've seen. Um, and then A3 is greater than 30, you know, proteinuria, excuse me, greater than 300. Um, and that's just, you know, proteinuria and you're just, you're spilling protein, you need to take action if possible. Um, one of the good things that uh, Cadago did back in 2012 is they updated um, a chart. So a lot of patients will be treated uh, by family practice, maybe internal medicine, um, several different specialists that aren't necessarily nephrologists. Um, and they, they kind of lay it out based on the albumin-creatinine ratio ranking and also the, the GFR staging. Um, on when to kind of refer. So they basically have anyone who is greater than 300 milligrams per gram on that, so A3 staging when it comes to albuminuria, to refer those patients to nephrology. Um, and then they have patients who are stage, uh, basically stage four um, and on are being referred unless uh, they, again, have that microalbuminuria and, um, you know, everyone before that, though, can realistically be treated without having to refer to nephrology. Mm -hmm. um, in an ideal situation, I'm sure it'd be better to have nephrology follow them, but it's not necessarily something that has to take place. Um, family medicine, internal medicine, several of those um, general practitioners are capable, fully capable of taking care of these patients. Yeah, it's definitely a judgment call, and it, it depends on, you know, where how they're progressing, mm -hmm. uh, even if they're early in the stages, but they're going downhill quick, Yeah, and you've done what you think you can do, you, you may want to, early referral to a nephrologist may be important at that point, but yeah. I mean, the, the goal of treatment with CKD is to delay or halt the progression, it's really the, the best thing you can do. Um, diagnose and treat the pathologic manifestations of it. And then if it were indicated, plan long-term renal replacement therapy in patients who are uh, pretty far gone as far as their kidneys go. So 
those three things. And, and so that's what we'll talk about treating comorbidities and um, even specific medications that are used to delay or halt the progression of CKD. Uh, that's the goal ultimately. Yep. And uh, so you meant you started to mention anemia, yeah. um, which is convenient because we just did a podcast on that. Like we did a couple episodes Sounded ago. familiar. <laughs> so, you know, one of the things is anemia um, based on chronic kidney disease is very common. Um, and I don't want to say good things, but as far as the material goes, um, one of the very common um, symptoms of the anemia that's seen in chronic kidney disease is iron deficiency anemia. And so a lot of the same uh, lab values, a lot of the same treatments still kind of uh, play a factor. Um, we do have to consider uh, hemoglobin levels when it comes to chronic kidney disease and figure out when we would actually need to drive those levels back up again. So that makes it a little bit more difficult. Yeah. Um, but the early stages, we, we realistically can, can treat uh, very similarly to just regular iron deficiency anemia. Yeah. So... Um, some goals to kind of keep in mind, um, if you have a patient that um, you're monitoring ferritin levels, you're um, monitoring transferrin saturation, um, think of it as, you know, the, a goal level, you'd want to keep the ferritin above uh, 100 nanograms per milliliter, and then the TSAT, you want to be above 20% if possible. Um, I know that's drifting into the realm of being low, but if you can keep it above those levels, you may be able to keep yourself out of uh, out of danger, but um, the other big aspect, like I said, is the hemoglobin. It seems like you're a little more aggressive with hemoglobin in uh, CKD than you would be in regular anemia, right? Yeah. Um, what, what's what's always confusing about this is, you know, we think of normal levels like in men being 13 or more. Mm -hmm. um, so technically, you have hemoglobin going low, um, you know, below 13 in, in a male or below 12 in a female. It's technically low hemoglobin. However, other than the iron treatment, we're not going to be giving anything to um, fix that, like the actual erythroproietin, right. you know, anything, you know, to that degree until they continue to progress worse. So we right. would just keep going with um, regular iron treatment, um, which I think is really confusing for a lot of people because you're like, well, why would you not want to normalize the, the hemoglobin levels? Um, so kind of looking, we'll come back to the iron itself, but since we're on this subject, um, you really wouldn't want to start something like erythropoietin stimulating agents until, um, if it's a person that's not on hemodialysis, um, is below 10 grams per deciliter. Mm -hmm. um, and the reason uh, for that is because there's a lot of uh, adverse effects that uh, EPO puts you at risk for. And so if I start putting a patient on erythropoietin, and they uh, start their, their hemoglobin levels start to increase. I have to really be cautious because I don't really want them to go above 11 at the most. Um, they did a study, I believe, Colbeck, make sure I'm telling saying this right, but I believe it was the choir study mm -hmm, that looked yeah. at um, the hemoglobin levels when you just kind of bring them above 11 versus with 13 uh, and kind of normalize them. We saw a huge increase in stroke, MI, um, VTE things like that when they tried to, to um, basically uh, normalize the hemoglobin levels. And so we want to keep them around 11 um, and not more than that. We just want to keep them out of that uh, range. So we have a very tight window that we kind of have to work in. So that makes it uh, pretty difficult. 
And then if they drop too far, you know, you start getting into the sixes and areas like that, then you have to start thinking about like packed red blood cells and actually transfusions, um, which then has a whole another list of issues with it. Right. So we won't really get into that, but um, definitely you have to use a lot of caution with the erythropoietin stimulating agents. But yeah, that is something that comes into play here that you wouldn't usually think of early on in regular anemia. Uh, but we actually got a, a, an interesting response to the anemia podcast, um, which we didn't ask him if we could read it. So we'll just call him Dr. Kev. There you go. He's I like Dr. it. Kev. But um, yeah, I just wanted to read a quick excerpt from it or at least summarize it. But basically we were talking about the regular iron dosing and, and people with anemia being about 325 milligrams two to three times a day. Uh, but he was cited some sources and uh was talking about the potential for everyday dosing of that um 325 milligrams or every other day he was talking about just the 325 not like the thousand once a day right yeah no it was uh just 325. it was at 325 and he was saying once a day to every other day to every other day can yeah. still uh instant that study he was referring to has actually showed that you can get people into the normal range, so you don't have to go as high as right. 200 every single day. And that's because of tolerability. Right. Because of the GI effects. Yeah. So. And he also so. said that he enjoys listening to the podcast. It's very yeah. informative, informative, useful, and fun to listen to. Yeah. Uh, so, Dr. Kev, man, Thanks, thank you Dr. so much. Kev. You're the man. Dr. Kev, Dr. Kev. Uh, I like it. <laughs> we'll be happy to use your real name if you uh, <laughs> give us permission in the future. <laughs> um, so, since we did that podcast just recently, we won't go really into the... Uh, yeah all the treatment options, but keep in mind, like ferrous sulfate is probably going to be the most common. 325 milligrams of ferrous sulfate is 65 milligrams of your elemental iron. Um, or you can do the, like the slow FE, which has less uh, iron content to it in regards to elemental iron, but is a little bit easier on the old GI tract. So. It's also fumarate and gluconate, FSG359. Yep. There you go. We're not even going to tell you what that means. You got to yeah, go, listen, you gotta to the go listen to the podcast. Drive those numbers back up. <laughs> Oh, geez. Okay. What next? Um, so other important manifestations would be managing the mineral and bone disorders. So those are pretty common, mm-hmm. uh, which you would you would want to treat by lowering high phosphate levels, managing serum calcium levels, um, lowering parathyroid levels, and potentially providing osteoporosis prophylaxis because that goes into that whole uh, loop of vitamin D, phosphate, and and parathyroid hormone that I'm sure everybody is hopefully familiar with from school. Super familiar with. <laughs> so the the big thing to consider is, you know, when if let's say a person's vitamin D levels are starting to decline, um, we know that we're using vitamin D to absorb calcium from the diet and allow it to you know make bone strong and all the other functions that calcium has. Um, you're you're lowering the vitamin D levels. Basically, in in CKD, it, it can happen because you have, uh, in order to activate vitamin D, so whether you take it uh, as a supplement, so if you take D3 supplement, um, it has to go through two different hydroxylation reactions. So you have one in the liver, and then you have a second one in uh, the kidney. So if the kidney is unable to actually metabolize and activate that right. vitamin D, it's not going to be able to do its job. So you're not going to be absorbing calcium the way you're supposed to, calcium levels start to decline. And so your body's natural reaction to that lowering of the calcium is to uh, get that calcium from somewhere else. And so parathyroid levels will start to increase, phosphorus levels will go up, 
um, the parathyroid hormone elevation will then signal uh, osteoclasts in the bones to start breaking down mm-hmm. the bone itself and get that calcium from the bone, which is obviously decreasing your bone mineral density. And uh, that's just going to then, um, you know, for a brief time anyway, raise your calcium serum levels. So calcium looks good. However, on the labs, your parathyroid's really high. Mm-hmm. Your phosphorus is really high. And D's going to um, be low. D's going to be low. Yeah. And so you may even have like a normalization of calcium when you first look at it. But that secondary kind of parathyroidism um, is definitely a factor. And when you start almost having like uh, bone breakdown to the point of like like osteoporosis type symptoms, um, I believe they still refer to it as uh, renal osteodystrophy. Um, Sounds right to me. But uh, yeah, so you're, it's it's a different, a um, little bit different picture um, coming from the renal aspect versus just regular osteoporosis. So it's more of the the renal function decline that's altering that that whole process. And that's significant because you already have a probably elderly patient with CKD, other comorbidities. Now they're having uh, either high risk or they're actually having a fracture. Uh, hip fractures are associated with enormous increases in mortality. So preventing that is really almost just as important or more important than uh, managing their other disease states and comorbidities at that point. And, you know, as far as kind of fixing the vitamin D, you know, that that, that may be the first option that we want to you know, fix in order to kind of start the the correction of the that whole loop cascade, whatever you want to call it. Um, you know, we're all familiar with like the fifty thousand units of vitamin D. Obviously, pumping that into somebody even twice a week, three times a week, if their kidneys are not able to actually metabolize that vitamin D, because remember, if it's D two or D three, mm-hmm. there's either neither one of those are activated vitamin D. And I, mm-hmm. I think that gets confused sometimes, where some people see vitamin D and D three, like D gets turned into three, like D two gets turned into D three. That's not how it works. Right. D two is the plant based vitamin D. Uh, D three is the like the same version that we get from the UV light in the skin, and uh, they're both inactive forms of vitamin D. Ergo and choline. Yeah, ergo calciferol is D2, cocalciferol is 3, not active. <laughs> so, in order to supplement these patients with vitamin D, you're going to have to pre-activate. You're going to have to give them activated vitamin D. And there's a few um, forms that it comes in. So, one, which is probably most common, is calcitriol, which is 125-dihydroxycholacalciferol, uh, which is a potent active metabolite of vitamin D. Uh, it can help suppress parathyroid production. Uh, and secretion into secondary hyperparathyroidism. So this is something that you would often consider switching somebody to if they're on that D2 or D3 and they have CKD and you want and their and their D levels aren't increasing. So they just stay on this 50,000 units of D3 or whatever more or less indefinitely because it's like, well, that's all we can do. Well, we could switch into an active form of vitamin D. That'll actually work. Okay. So, you know, that vitamin D um, you're basically shutting off that parathyroid gland by, from releasing that hormone. Um, the big adverse effect that you have to watch out for with the vitamin D analogs, um, so in, like Cole's saying, uh, calcitriol is probably the most common, um, is hypercalcemia, right? Which is weird because that's exactly what we're trying to rectify is our low calcium that's starting this whole problem in the first place. Um, you know, low calcium from low vitamin D. And uh, so... We have to really monitor the calcium, make sure that we're not getting hypercalcemia, 
Um, we also have to uh, continue to watch the phosphorus can cause some GI upset and, uh, um, taking it with some, some food can, can decrease that, but it's not going to do anything for the hypercalcemia. So that's just straight monitoring. And on that same vein, it can also help with hypocalcemia if that, if that's the picture, which, you know, isn't really exactly what we've been talking about, but it can happen. So. Yeah, absolutely. And, and, re- and realistically, the person has most likely truly is hypocalcemic. Right, it's just, like a pseudo. The, the calcium just normalized because of the bone anyway. Pseudo normal. So it's going to go back down at some point anyway. Right. Um, so calcium trial is going to fix all that. And, but in the process, you got to make sure that you're monitoring the calcium. And there are a couple of other forms like doxorcalciferol, uh, which is another vitamin D analog that doesn't require activation by the kidneys, paracalcitol, calcifadiol, extended release formulation. So there's some other ones, but calcitriol is going to be the most common. Yeah, probably the cheapest as well. Yeah, which isn't, it's not nearly as cheap as the D2 or D3, but um, not super expensive, I don't think. And, and we'll come right back to that, but just as a side note, in case anybody's wondering, are D3 and D2 interchangeable? Because that's like the big question I've, I've gotten several times. So here's the the textbook answer. Obviously, is no from like a, you know, completely just, no, they're not equivalents. One's ergocalciferol, one's cocalciferol. Mm-hmm. Um, from a lot of people, though, say that there's no difference between the two, so it doesn't really matter. So from the evidence um, that we have available, there's a, a nice meta-analysis that kind of lays out all the different trials that have looked at them. Technically speaking, um, you do get a better response to D3. So you get a higher uh, correction or higher elevation in D, vitamin D levels when you use D3 as opposed to D2. Um, however, D3 is more expensive, and it's hard to tell from the little trials, um, the, the small number of trials, I shouldn't say little, they're not physically little, <laughs> <laughs> they're, uh, the small number of trials that we've done uh, with vitamin D comparing 2 and 3, um, it's hard to tell whether or not it's clinically significant. Right. I was going to say it doesn't matter if, if it, we're yeah. correcting it yeah. when we just correct them higher. Yeah. Um, probably doesn't matter. And so th- there's not real great clearance on um, which one is truly better. But if you're having a problem with D2 uh, and, and getting those levels corrected, obviously make sure the renal function's there. Um, but if, if that's not the issue, then maybe consider switching to to D3 and seeing if that makes a difference because in a lot of the studies it does seem to give higher levels. And so. if you're in a pharmacy and they write for ergocalciferol and you fill D3, then that is wrong. So Technically. Although yeah. I will say a lot of people probably brush that under the table. Yeah. But, <laughs> you know, so. probably the best to uh, to get some get some OKs from the provider just in case that person's been on D3 or D2 or D2 rather for a long period of time and they're right. trying to switch. So right. to get some clearance. Um, or unless you have access to the chart, then go for it. <laughs> yeah, which would be ideal. But um, we're not there yet, though. Well, it depends on your setting. <laughs> yes, that's very true. I'm not there yet. <laughs> I get to yell out the back and be like, "Hey, I'm switching to D2." I'm and they're fl- like, "Sounds good." <laughs> I'm flying. I'm flying blind. <laughs> flying completely blind. Yeah, that's good though. That's why you're special forces out there. Right. <laughs> um, if the you're giving an analog, a vitamin D analog, the calcium starts. To going through the roof and we got to bring it back down we can give a calcium emetic mm-hmm. um, the most common one is going to be sensipar um, basically what that's doing is it's it's kind of um, working on the 
the receptors in the parathyroid gland that sort of basically sense this uh, calcium in the system um, to make it more receptive uh, to turn down those parathyroid levels and then again signal to the bone that okay you're done you don't need to be breaking down bone anymore um, and then it reduces the parathyroid levels and, and also will just help reduce uh, the phosphorus and the calcium levels as well and uh, bring those levels hopefully back to a normal level. Um, first adverse effect listed on calcium mimetic is hypocalcemia. Yeah. And so you're just chasing it all <laughs> over the place, up and down, all over, and you can't get your calcium right. Which is why these these patients need close Close follow-up, close yeah. monitoring. It's a, it's, it's, it's definitely hard, but um, just kind of laying it all out there, and then we'll, we'll let you guys uh, play with it in real yeah. life. <laughs> we just, we just sit behind microphones and yeah. talk about it. But very nice microphones, yeah, I will say. They are. Jeez. <laughs> <laughs> oh, on the vein of electrolyte abnormality, so if they have hyperphosphatemia, mm-hmm. similarly, you can use phosphate binders, either uh, oral um, dietary phosphate binders, or you can. Consider dietary restriction of phosphate. Common ones would be um, Rinvella, Savelamir, uh, oral phosphate binder. Phosphorinol is another common one. There's a few others like um, Velforo, uh, sucroferic oxyhydroxide, uh, which is a calcium-free phosphate binder. A lot of these, um, they, they tout that they're a non-calcium, non-aluminum phosphate binder like phosphorinol. Uh, that is sometimes they're only indicated if they are in stage five so they're in in-stage renal disease uh, others not necessarily but um if you're looking at um civilimir, there's two different forms actually there's civilimir carbonate and then civilimir hydrochloride um the Rinvella is the carbonate version um, carbonate is uh, does seem to be preferred. Um, you get less instances of GI intolerance and um, less uh, acidosis as well. So if you are trying to pick between the civilimers, they are uh, not created equal. Um, and then let's say you need to you need a phosphate binder, but you do need some additional calcium. Like if you have hypocalcemia to begin with, um, there are calcium-based phosphate binders, and it can be something as simple as Tums or Oscal, which is just the calcium carbonate. Um, or you can give the more commonly used uh, calcium acetate, which is FOSLO. Um, acetate is definitely preferred. Uh, it seems to be more effective. Um, seems to be less instances of the hypercalcemia. Um, and it can even increase your bicarbonate levels, which also play a role in uh, CKD as well. So if you do need some calcium along with it and you need to lower the phosphate, um, you know, Fosolo is probably a good option. And then if your calcium levels are normal or already elevated, then uh, the Savelamir is definitely probably a first line in that case. Kind of going from there. And those non-calcium phosphate binders are going to be pretty pricey. So mm-hmm. just anticipate that your patient is going to need a PA if you're prescribing those uh, from their insurance. So it might take a few days. Yeah. And um, th- there's some... Th- uh, some sources that will still list uh, aluminum-based um, phosphate binders. You can actually uh, cause aluminum um, uh, toxicity. So, like things like uh, the antacid formulations. I can't even think of a brand name of one right now. Um, of not, an aluminum. Uh, yeah, like aluminum not uh, Malox. I don't think but it's the other one. It doesn't matter. You know what I'm talking about. Um, It'll come to you, Cole. Yeah, it'll come to me. I was looking. At, I was just looking at my laxative aisle yesterday, just reading. 
and I forget now. That's um, yeah. Well, <laughs> it was, it was <laughs> a few minutes to close. <laughs> There's nobody here. <laughs> just hanging on my laxative aisle. Just hanging on the laxative aisle, just learning. Just learning. But um, of course, it doesn't help us now. Apparently, so. <laughs> no, it's useless. <laughs> Did not do enough learning. Um, but yeah, so the aluminum hydroxide suspensions, you know, we want to stay away from those. Um, not not great. If if possible, stay away. Um, what did we not mention? Um, I mentioned briefly bicarbonate. Um, you can, uh, consider treating bicarbonate levels. If bicarbonate starts falling below 22 milliequivalents per liter, um, then, uh, there's always the option of giving sodium bicarb and, uh, hopefully keeping the person from, um, having sort of a metabolic acidosis situation going on. Um, doesn't happen with everybody, and, uh, you know, especially like in stage 3B, the instances can be as low as 18%, and so it's definitely something that um, is going to be patient-specific. You don't have to necessarily treat every single patient with sodium bicarbonate immediately, but keep an eye on it, and, um, you know, the goal levels will be somewhere in the range of 22 to 28, if possible. Um, but it definitely, low sodium bi- or low bicarb levels definitely can lead to some some definitely uh, some big issues, some progression of your CKD, um, muscle degradation, all kinds of things. I think Malox is what we were thinking of. Is it aluminum hydroxide? <laughs> You've been thinking about that. Yeah, <laughs> well, because I because I that's what I was pretty I sure, think, and I googled it, and that's all I'm seeing. Which or one? Mylanta. Yeah. Oh, Mylanta. Mm-hmm. Gaviscon. Which one's that? That's. I think that's a similar thing. They all. I mean, I, I think they're all similar. I just can't remember which ingredients are in what. Oh, well, I mean, I, I know that. Malox has aluminum hydroxide. You'd think that like that would be pretty elementary stuff that we just we just well, openly showed to everybody we don't know. Yeah, well, you know, and you know, Gaviscon has aluminum hydroxide in there too, so I think we're just all sorts of right. Yeah, that's, that's the only I possible. Think the lesson that we learned here is that we're super right. We just we know too much that it it, it gets. <laughs> Jumbled in there, you know? I can't even say that was straight face. <laughs> That's definitely not it. <laughs> That's a bold conclusion. Oh, man. Jeez. People are turning us off right now. Like, well, no. You wonder why I spend time in my OTC aisle. Yeah. Well, hey, you got to learn somehow. <laughs> there you go. Oh, geez. Um, That's all I got other than cardiovascular stuff. Yeah. Well, let's yeah, let's touch on that real quick before we kind of close up. Let's do it. Um, so blood pressure obviously is a very common comorbidity with mm-hmm. these patients. Um, so blood pressure goals, um, we have, depending on, again, which guideline you're looking at and all that jazz, um, typically thinking less than 140 over 90 or kind of what the Cadago guidelines say, if the person has an albumin-creatinine ratio of less than 30, um, anything above that, you're thinking 130 over 80. And then I believe the um, the newest American Heart Association, American College of Cardiation, um, cardiation, yeah, that's a new thing, cardiology. Uh, the 2017 guidelines also say 130 already for CKD. Um, but the big thing is looking at that albuminuria and seeing if you need to um, give an ACE or an ARB. So right. those are going to be your go-to agents. Brass system. Um, to, to protect the, the kidneys. Now, what's weird about this is and this gets this gets misconstrued all the time I feel like if a person is starting on an ACE or an ARB one of the big things we want to watch for is a bump in um, serum creatinine of 30% from the baseline because it can cause an acute renal injury um, a lot of times it's from dehydration and things like that so you can kind of like rehydrate the patient and then you know restart the ACE if you wanted to to give it a second shot um, 
However, that acute kidney injury risk gets misconstrued to where we say that there's like a hard cutoff for someone who has end-stage renal disease or chronic kidney disease to where we don't want to use an ACE or an ARB. Right. Um, that's not the case. Um, there's a really nice study in uh, New England Journal of Medicine 2006 where they looked at benazapril in patients with severe chronic kidney disease. Um, basically, patients could be included in the study if they had a uh, serum creatinine of 1.5 up to 5, and um, they had to have... Uh, less than 30% variation in their um, creatinine clearance um, within three months. So taking away the whole acute renal injury risk, um, these patients had to have established true chronic kidney disease, and they were given benazapril. Um, And I won't go through, like, all of the different outcomes that they looked at, um, but basically the the primary outcome where they were looking at benazapril versus placebo, um, the primary outcome where they... Uh, basically combine, uh, combined creatinine doubling and uh, arriving at end-stage renal disease or death, um, the primary, primary outcome showed that the benazapril was significantly better at reducing those events, and the number needed to treat was five. So mm. pretty solid. That's uh, a number needed to treat right there. Yeah, that's a heck of a number. Um, but it was significant for um, those individual groups kind of broken up as well, uh, end-stage renal disease, um, reduction in proteinuria was significantly better. Um, the doubling of serum creatinine level was significantly better when you looked at that by itself. So overall, we know that ACEs, um, at least in particular ACEs, um, we would then extrapolate that to ARBs. But uh, ACEs definitely have their, their place in CKD. Um, and, and realistically, the reason for that is, especially in the instance of proteinuria, you're dilating the uh, both the afferent and the efferent arterial in the uh, nephron, which is going to allow a constant flow of blood, um, decreasing in, in integral marital pressure, which hopefully will decrease proteinuria. Yep. I actually got that question on rotation. So, I mean, you can basically use ACEs and ARBs all the way into dialysis, mm-hmm. right? Right. Yeah, uh, because you get worried because you know that they can cause an AKI, but as long as you're monitoring the creatinine, you don't have that greater than 30% increase from baseline, from, whatever from you baseline. started with. Yeah. And it can be any baseline. You know, that's, that's kind of that's strange though, because they're already declining. So can you really attribute that to the ACE or ARP? I guess it doesn't matter. Cause people. it would be quick. I mean, they're yeah, declining, but usually it's not going to be that. That's true. Yeah. That quick. So, you know, if it happens within the, that week of starting it, you know, it's most likely going to be days. Right. Um, so if a person is, for whatever reason, ACE and ARB intolerant, they absolutely cannot be on an ACE or an ARB, the, another agent that I think we often forget about is the non-dihydropyridine calcium channel blockers, the verapamil um, Those are also going to dilate afferent and efferent arterial as well and uh, hopefully reduce that interglomerular pressure. Um, but I feel like that's the one that gets left off a lot. Yeah. Whereas amlodipine or philodipine or one of the dihydropyridine calcium channel blockers, uh, they are going to dilate only the afferent arterial, which is going to increase your intraglomerular pressure and maybe worsen proteinuria. Right. So no bueno. And in certain situations, it may also be worth checking for renal artery stenosis before starting an ACE. Yeah. Because then you're just going to induce an AKI. Yes. That's also a good point. Basically. Right off the bat. Also, avoiding nephrotoxins. We didn't even touch on that. But really, it's ultimately uh, just avoid NSAIDs. If, if they're in the early stages or late stages, just have, you know, 
have Mavoid instead. Let's try something else. Let's do Tylenol, see what we can do. Uh, encourage smoking cessation, some of those lifestyle um, health maintenance type stuff. Um, the other thing is that I, I definitely want to make sure we mention um, patients on statins. So mm-hmm. statins are great in all kinds of different uh patient populations. However, um, keep in mind, if you have a patient that is starting hemodialysis um, and they are on a statin currently, make sure that the statin gets stopped as they go on hemodialysis. Um, There was a study called 4D, um, again, New England Journal of Medicine. This one was back in 2005. And um, it was done specifically in patients with type 2 diabetes that were undergoing hemodialysis, but they gave them a torvastatin and, um, you know, kind of followed them to see if all the cardiovascular benefits that they would have from this statin, just like we see in all the other trials. Um, unfortunately, there was no difference across the board except for um, it was actually harmful in regards to stroke, and that's fatal stroke. Um, the number needed to harm was 50. So if the person was on a torvastatin and they were on hemodialysis, they had every 50 or one out of every 50 people treated with that torvastatin had a fatal stroke. And then nobody else had any decreases in cardiovascular events. It was the same as placebo. So avoid that statin in hemodialysis. But in the non-hemodialysis CKD patients, a lot of those are actually indicated for statins um, and lipid-lowering therapies So because they are at increased risk for cardiovascular events. So... Um, just consider that, especially patients with um, clearance less than 60 can potentially, depending, you know, check it out, depending on the comorbidities, very well may be indicated. Um, but LDL itself is not, it is really an insufficient test for cardiovascular risk in CKD patients. So, you know, don't treat the numbers, treat the patient. They still might be indicated, but you still should do lipid tests and all that. Don't treat the numbers, treat for results. Treat for outcomes. It's a t-shirt. It is a t-shirt. Coming to a... Let's do it. CoreConsultRx.com near you. (laughs) Slash uh, uh, paraphernalia. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) Sounds like like, uh, an illegal operation we have going on. (laughs) Oh, geez. Well, CKD, ladies and gentlemen. Is GFR on the um, ASCVD risk calculator? I, I don't believe so. I don't think so either. But it makes sense, right? CKD patient increased risk. You think they would have incorporated that one in there? I think so. Maybe we should write a new one. We should do our own. We should. We'll call it the core the, console the risk The CCASCVD. Yep. Yep. And then when people Abridged. are like, "Oh, really? Is that uh, is that Evan Space?" We're gonna be like, mm, mm. "Yeah." <laughs> well, it will be just yeah. It's created by two goofs with headphones on. <laughs> <laughs> but very nice looking headphones, I will say. <laughs> That's true. For those of you not watching, but nice uh, looking microphones right beside them. Yeah. Thanks, Dr. Dre, for your cool headphones. <laughs> Hashtag beats. <laughs> beats by Dre. <laughs> oh, geez. Um, anyways, so, uh, yeah, anything else you want to add for that? That's all I got. Me good, too. Good little overview. Yeah, if we do say so ourselves. <laughs> <laughs> but, yeah, check out our uh, podcast numero uno for some more detail on the um, hypertension guidelines. Mm-hmm. And then check out podcast numero 39 for more information Iron on anemia. deficiency anemia. Yeah. Well done. I like how you're trying to drive those numbers from those early podcasts. I'm trying back to, up. I, mean, I know, know what you're doing. Okay. Well, the, the last like 
20 have really good numbers, but some of the first 10, yeah, you know. Yeah, well, you know, we people are just finding us. It's going to take them a while to true. catch up. Yeah. They got to binge listen to us. There are some There oh. are some binge listeners we've heard from them. I yeah, that's awesome. I can't believe I it. I can't imagine listening to my voice <laughs> for more than five seconds. It's the worst. Yeah, you guys are awesome. Thank you. Cool. Well, that uh, concludes the episode, I guess, and we will definitely uh come up with some new stuff and get back to you soon but we appreciate everyone listening it really means a lot to us for um all joking aside we we genuinely appreciate anyone taking the time to listen to us um if you do like the podcast please give us a subscribe leave a comment on itunes or wherever you're listening to it at and uh we will keep trying to bring you um content and hopefully keep increasing the quality of the show and making it better and better uh thank you guys so much and we will see you next time